0: This is uh, case eight from the Mumon Khan. <clears throat> Keichu makes cults. The case. Master Getan asked the monk, Kechu made a hundred cults. If he took off both wheels and removed the axle, what would he ma- what would he make clear about the cult? Mumon's commentary. If you can realize this at once, your eye will be like a shooting star, and your spiritual activity like catching lightning. The verse. Where the active wheel revolves, even a master fails. It moves in four directions, above and below, south and north, east and west. Master Getan was an 11th century Chinese Zen master in the Rinzai lineage. And the Dalma grandfather of Mumon compiled this collection, the Mumonkan. In this case, he brings up a story about a cult maker, a known cult maker by the name of Keichu. He's known as a master craftsman made magnificent cults with hundred spokes on each wheel. And Getan says, take a close look at this amazing work of art of, and craftsmanship. Now, remove the wheels and the axle. What do you see? What is left of this magnificent work of art, craftsmanship? Sekida says that in this analogy your body is the wheels and your brain is the axle, which is true. But how do we understand that? How does analogy work? Or does it? Now the power of Koans is found in its ability to point directly to the heart of the matter, to our true nature, pure and naked reality. But the danger with, of working with koans is our tendency to try to figure things out through analytical, conceptual process. And in this case is actually a great example of how a Quran can push us deeper into perpetual way of thinking or free us from it. It raises the tendency. In fact, that's what we are most comfortable doing. Even when we get frustrated, we still go back to that process thinking, well, maybe I did not think hard enough. Or maybe I'm not seeing something in the details. Which may be true. But it's not, (laughs) breaking through is not, has nothing to do with realizing I have a small hammer, I gotta go get a bigger one to smash through. It actually has to do with completely putting down all those tools we are used to using or we, we rely on all of them down and then asking, is there another way? Is there another way to hear those words? Now, Getan is talking about a cult, a house, a dog, a person or anything else. We perceive through our senses. How do we perceive? What do we perceive through our senses? What kind of, what do we assign to what we see or perceive through our senses? So he's asking when you take away everything that makes you yourself. What will then be obvious? How do we do that? How do we put aside ourselves? Well, then who will be looking at something else, right? What will then be obvious? Well, who is asking the question? What will then be obvious? And who will answer it? Not that there is no way to do that, but it has to do with transcending something. The last Sunday we held a, our first book study session on the Diamond Sutra. What I want to do today is go back to the fundamental teachings of this sutra and try to open it up, unpack it, shed some light on it using this koan. So if you remember in the third chapter the Buddha said to Subhuti that a practitioner of the way who creates the perception of a self, a being, a life or a soul, cannot be called a practitioner or bodhisattva as he said it. What does it mean to be a practitioner? What does it mean to be a bodhisattva? Literally, body means awaken, and Sattva, a person, a being. So put together, literally, Bodhisattva refers to a person who has taken up the resolve, intention, to live an awakened life. What is an awakened life? Do you know anybody who says, I sleepwalk through life? Do we know anybody who would say, I am not awakened to my day-to-day activity? Not too many. Everybody. Of course, I am awake, conventionally speaking, right? We wake up in the morning. We may doze off here and there, but for the most part, we're kind of aware of what's happening. So are we all awakened? What does it mean to awaken to the way to awaken to who we are, what we are. And because most people don't give it a second thought, when you ask, they will say, of course. Yeah, I wake up in the morning and I stay awake for most of the day. right? And it's not in question for most people because... We rely heavily on unexamined assumption about who we are and about external and separate reality that surrounds it. This is who I am, the one sitting here on this cushion, and then the one sitting here on this cushion is either acting upon surrounding reality or the reality is acting upon the one sitting on this cushion. That's conventional, that's logical. It makes sense. That's why it makes sense for life to appear in different ways, right? Sometimes it appears heavy amazing burden, right? So unbelievable weight that is sitting on our shoulders and other times it feels like it's a breeze. And it has a lot to do with our relationship with. The one sitting on the cushion and the relationship of that one with the reality. We feel good, reality is fine. We don't feel so good about ourselves. Reality appears in a completely different way. Could be the same exact thing. Different experience. So all of it, all the examination, exploration has to begin with asking, is it possible that I'm not, I am not what I think I am? Is it possible that I'm not that? Is it possible that what I think I am is only a perception or a dream? And what I really am is reality as it awakens to itself. Is it possible? It's a scary notion. It's a scary notion to to, to examine the possibility that everything I know about myself may be the dream. When I take that away, what's left? That dream is solid. It's strong. It's powerful. It's everything we do. It's what drives us when we wake up in the morning. It's what drives our emotions. Who am I, right? When unexamined, when unexamined, of course I know who I am. Ask anybody, they'll tell you. They'll tell you even if you don't ask. Of course I know who I am. In fact, we tell our story not so much in describing the story, but in acting it out through our emotions through anger, through defensiveness, through holding on to opinions. That's how the story is being told. That's how our lives tell the story. So of course I know who I am and I have many details that corroborate that story and prove it. As it seems, right? But can I really prove it? Can I really prove it? So when we examine, as we do, as practitioners, we start to examine, we start to realize that it's actually not so solid as it seems. Not that it goes away when we realize that it's not so solid, but it's essential. First step. And first step doesn't mean the first time we decided to embark on a path. It actually means today it is first step we are beginners if you think otherwise put that thought aside we are beginners because whatever we have realized up to this point has to be let go of and we have to realize again and again and again and deepen that realization or as you would hear often in Zen spit it out Quickly. Spit it out because you think you have realized. You think you have realized. How is that forgetting the self? It doesn't care, the self, what you assign to it. As long as you assign something. No, the the perception of me, it's kind of like a grand production on a Broadway or a Broadway show. It's been running for years, decades. They're all shows. They run for decades, right? The characters change. The show must continue. But unlike a standard Broadway show, this one is More like a family business, right? That that is passed on from generation to generation. It's like we own a theater that was given to us by our parents, and was given to them by their parents. For very far like that, from generation to generation, the basic script for the play, the stage all the furniture, the elaborate facade, the dressing rooms with all the costumes, all of it, an inheritance, handed down to me by my parents, my upbringing, societal influences, my karma. And within this grand production, I am the producer, and the main character, general manager, president. And I'll decide who to hire and who to fire. Because I know it's in my blood passed down for my parents. Of course I know. And as long as I am on the stage the role, my role, is clearly chiseled and defined and the script perfectly memorized, perfected for years. Maybe I play the victim, maybe the perpetrator, maybe my character is of high intelligence, Maybe no intelligence. Maybe I'm stupid. Because that's in the script. That's what I was told. It's in, in the inheritance papers. The loser, the winner, the one that succeeds, the one that fails. And which, which role my character is playing on this stage is actually not as important as What am I, right now, getting out of it? The role is a given. It was given. So there's nothing we can do about that. But what am I getting out of it now? What keeps me on the stage? Without asking these questions, I will pass that production on to next generation. And the simple answer is, I get to know who I am. That's what I get out of it. I get to know who I am. And I need to know who I am. That's the assumption. I need to know who I am. If I didn't, I wouldn't stay on the stage. You close those. Close. It gives me a sense of security, comfort, sense of direction, a place from which to engage the world. A sense of familiarity. And definitely a sense that this kind of knowing comes with all these benefits. And this is what we call delusion. This is what makes the dream come true. The dream is reality. And that's what makes it happen. So when I open up my mouth to defend that role, to act out that role, I dive deeper into the dream. I perpetuate the dream. So the first step of spiritual awakening Begins by be- with becoming aware that we are asleep. That we are perpetuating a dream. While we sleep the ongoing production is based on those details. On me and my story. So the first step is to recognize cracks in the solidity of the story. And to doubt that the hero, me, actually exists. Do I exist in that way? I think I exist. I came across an article by Cheongyam Trungpa Rinpoche, it speaks about that. Let the train pass. <laughs> He says basically speaking we are not born we don't exist if we are unborn if we were never if we were never give birth to ourselves how is it possible that, that we are here we are here right what is this thing sitting here on a cushion we might say literally i was born from my mother and psychologically speaking i seem to have a have preconceptions of things. So I'm going to say it again. Literally, I was born for my mother and psychologically speaking, I seem to have preconceptions of things. Ideas are born in my head or my heart and I'm executing those ideas in my life. But who said that? That's the point. Who is actually talking about those things? Who is questioning those whole, this whole idea? Who is asking the question? The questionnaire, of course. But who is the questionnaire? Or rather, what is the questionnaire? If you look back and back and back, after and after and after, it is like overlapping onion skins. You approach outer space and you find that nobody actually said anything at all. It was just a little burp. Somebody burped, which was misunderstood as language. Then, after that, somebody said, I beg your pardon? And then somebody said, Oh, of course, I'm sorry, I burped. That cosmic burp, or cosmic fault, he says, <laughs> was an accident, a complete accident, unintentional. And that is what what's called the origin of karma. Everything started on an accidental level. Everything, everything is an accident. So the accident, that's the end of quote, the accident or the error has to do with creating perception of a self, a being, a life, and a soul. which appears to be acting upon reality or reality is acting upon it. And when we create a perception of self, we give birth to three modes of being, like, dislike, indifference. And life, people, circumstances are reduced to fit in one of those three categories. Right? Either I like, I don't like, I don't care. That's it. We actually reduce ourselves and our lives to one of those three boxes. It's sad. It's sad. We get so irritated so quickly. Or content. Right? Or we don't care. It happens so quickly. And we actually believe that this is representing reality as it is. Why? Because I don't like it. That's why it must be like so. And it has to change to what I do like. How small-minded are we? How great are we to be so small-minded? Right? How great are we to succumb to this small-mindedness? That's the question. Right? So when, when the Buddha asks Subhuti, is the space to the east measurable? To the west? Can you measure that? Up. Can you measure that? How can you measure? Well, based on what I like. Easy, right? I can measure. I can judge. I have standards. And you don't fit my standards today. Try again tomorrow. You, whether it's a person, situation, whatever, it doesn't fit the standards so I will throw you away rather than throw away my standards. Rather than look at my standards, I will look at you and say, well, I don't like you. I'll fire you and hire somebody else for the production because I own the production. There's nothing you can do about that. And the most amazing thing about all this is that while we are preoccupied with weaving intricate stories within the dream, as we're doing right now, the Dharma, on the unbreakable law of the universe, is always awakened to in its own intrinsic nature, always awakened to its own intrinsic nature. That's not in question. We dream within an awakened reality. So the dream itself happens within the vast, unbound, awakened reality. Because when we awaken, it's the same. It doesn't change because we awaken. So to say that I'm an accident is the same as Asvagosha saying original enlightenment is intrinsic but non-enlightenment is accidental. I am an accident. To think that there is an I is the error, the accident. The burp, the fault that was later on misunderstood as language. We can also say that unity is intrinsic. But the creation of a, an identity out of the way unity is expressing itself through this form is accidental. Unity is inherently true. So the question is, can I see that the everyday, my everyday thoughts, the emotions, memories, experiences, of the ones sitting on these cushions, by themselves, do not form separate entity. By themselves, do not. It's not that they are not there as experiences. It's just that they do not form a separate self. The pain, the sorrow, the happiness, like, dislike, all of it, doesn't create anything. It happens. It doesn't mean anything other than the fact that it does happen as an experience. So by themselves they do not form me or separate entity. I string them together to create what we conventionally agree to call me. I do that. How do I do it? by harping on it, by perpetuating the story, by telling the story to others, by hiring and firing people that I like or don't, don't like to take part in my production. I create what does not exist. One of his talks, Tik uses a flower. He actually picks up a flower and holds it And he he tries to shed light on on the fallacy of a perception of a separate entity. And he says, a flower, this flower is made of non-flower elements. We can describe the flower as being full of everything. There is nothing that is not present in the flower. We see sunshine, we see the rain, we see clouds, we see the earth. We also see time and space in the flower. A flower, like everything else, is made entirely of non-flower elements. What you can't find in the flower is a flower. It's not that there's no flower. It's just that what makes a flower a flower is not, has nothing to do with the flower. Everything appears in that flower. He says the whole cosmos has come together in order to help the flower manifest herself. The flower is full of everything except one thing a separate self, a separate identity. The flower cannot be by herself alone. The flower has to interbe with the sunshine, the clouds, and everything in the cosmos. If we understand being in terms of interbeing, then we are much closer to the truth interbeing is not being and it's not not being interbeing means being empty of a separate identity empty of a separate self and he's talking about us well it's talking about everything right same with us he actually does go on to talk about a person that <coughs> there is a lot in that person except for a person because there is the mother and father there is the food, there is everything else that the per- that made possible for this entity to show up, this form to appear. This form would not appear if it wasn't for everything else. So this form is already everything else. Actually, nothing but everything else. Now I return to oneness is now I rest in the realization, in the understanding that I am not what I think I am. I am not what I think I am. So in this in this koan used, or the the story that he's telling in this koan, he used a hundred hundred spokes and an axle to create beautifully crafted cults. But when you take away the elements that form what we call a cult, what is being removed and what remains? So you can think of it as you yourself. You use thousands of intricate thoughts, emotions, experiences and memories to form a fixed and well-defined identity you call yourself. But when you take away all these details, the question is, what is lost and what remains? Was there anything? Is there anything there? Fixed. Is there anything fixed in that? Is there an identity in all those details? If there is, where is it? If it's lost, how could it be lost if it wasn't there to begin with? Where is it? No, to take away, as he says, to take away does not mean to deny or reject experiences. Actually, anything. right? In this context, taking away means to recognize the dynamic and interconnected nature of the details we clump together to form a cult, a self or anything else to see that it is dynamic it is constantly becoming, changing moving it is not possible for it to form a fixed you it's not possible Just examine, look. This is where we have to put the assumptions aside, right? The assumption that there is a fixed sense of self, a fixed me. There is a fixed sense of self. But there is, is there something there that can be not moving, not changing? So all that's being removed is an idea of a static or fixed appearance. Whether it is encountered as a sight, sound, scent, taste, Tactile sensation or thought. Essentially, all appearances lack fixed and independent nature. So how can we use the details that, that that are dynamic by nature to create a static form? How is it possible? And because it is not possible, it's delusion. We do it. It's not we don't do it. That's what we call delusion. And to awaken to the fact that we're doing it is realization. In the commentary to the Diamond Sutra, Bill Porter said, says, there's a red pine, Objects are manifestations, mirages or signs of things that never quite appear in their entirety because none of them is ultimately real, but only perceived to be real. When we perceive a person or a thing, we perceive something that that exists in space and time as a combination of visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, tactile, and cognitive elements. But upon closer analysis, each of these elements turn out to be constantly changing and impossible to isolate from the other elements. Thus, nothing is real. Still, we can not let go of the larger, supposedly unchanging entity that we imagine exists somewhere beyond the horizon of our sensor- sensory faculties. And yet, such an entity never quite appears. But the reason that it never quite appears is because it is an illusion whose reality we extrapolate by combining elements that are by themselves no more real than the illusion to which they contrib- contribute. Thus, a perception of an object is a delusion of or an illusion. A perception of an object, whether it's something we see or ourselves, is delusion. For if the object itself is not real, how can the perception of it be real? On the other hand, if we keep from becoming attached to the perception, we cannot be obstructed or restricted by the object. Right? So, and this is the this is the work. To recognize that the perceptions are formed, and at the same time to pull away energy from that, not to give it attention, to recognize it, but not to allow it to determine our words and actions. Not to allow it to shrink ourselves and our reality to like, dislike, indifference. But how do we understand that? Does that mean that nothing exists or nothing matters. And that's the danger. If we don't understand that correctly, it can appear as if nothing really matters because we don't even exist. So in reference to to, the question Gedan is raising in this koan, Shibayama says, literally, this question may be interpreted as follows. Kechu made a cult by putting together various parts. Now, if all these parts are taken away, and the very shape of the cart is gone, what will become of it? And he says, based on such interpretations, there are those who take it as the doctrine of shunyata, emptiness, which teaches that everything is primarily empty. So they will go on to say that when the cart is dismantled, the very form of the cart is gone. This may be a, one Buddhist doctrine, but this is not Zen. This is a very important point. This may be one Buddhist doctrine, but this is not Zen. This is where Zen pushes through, moves on from there. Not that it's not important to understand emptiness or shunyata. How do we understand shunyata? How do we not get trapped by Shunyata? That's the question. So Shibiyama is asking us to look beyond the form while not rejecting its appearance. In other words, to see that the timeless and vast emptiness is manifesting in the unique and fragility of the body of the one sitting on this cushion. This is how timelessness shows up today at 11 o'clock. It has to show up this way. Yet it's timeless, yet it's empty, yet it is not what we think it is. Unique, different, special, vast, wide, empty, at the same time. Yamada Kuhn writes, in contemplating the empty if infinite, Buddhism has two approaches. One way is to understand that everything is empty by means of analysis. The other way is to realize that everything is substantially empty by means of experience. Because if we intellectualize that, we get trapped by what we do. Because we intellectualize it, we get trapped. And that's why koans cannot be intellectualized. If they do, they don't serve the purpose. Or we don't use them well, I should say. And then he says, we have two Japanese poems which provide an interesting contrast to explain those two approaches. The first one, the first poem says, Since the whole cottage has been built by assembling brushwood, if we took it to pieces, nothing would remain but the field as before. And the second poem says, Since the cottage has been built by assembling brushwood, there is nothing but the field even without taking it to pieces. Emptiness is form already form is emptiness already without doing anything it's already realizing itself it is already one with it's already timeless and within that we create delusions within that we create perceptions believe them And allow them to dictate the way we speak, the way we act. Since all appearances lack independent nature, form is none other than emptiness. What does this have to do with our lives? Everything. Everything. Absolutely everything. When we understand this by means of experience, we realize that we are unified by nature and therefore liable for the well-being of each other and for the well-being of this planet. Because we are the planet. Because we are each other. Only by understanding emptiness as it is, not as it intellectualized, as it is, we can understand unity and then we can understand dana paramita, the perfection of giving. In fact, by understanding emptiness dana paramita comes to life. Of course. Of course, we will act this way. Of course, we will care deeply for each other and for the planet. What else would we do? How else can we be? Only that way we realize that our destructive small-mindedness is a result of an erroneous perception of a fixed identity. We have come to trust, cherish, actually be infatuated with. We are infatuated with our own perception. Just think about how many times you get upset because somebody does not do what you want or crosses your path or says something you don't agree with. Why? Why would we get so upset? Why? Why? Because we form a fixed sense of self string together all, from all the experiences that we have. And we want to hold on to it. So if I don't yell at you maybe I'm giving it up. And I don't want to give it up. So we have become infatuated actually enslaved by it we are enslaved by our own sense of being, our own sense of self. And this is why, this is the teaching of the the third chapter in the Diamond Sutra, which actually lies at the basis of the fourth chapter, which talks about Danna Paramita, Because we can't understand Danna Paramita. How to practice Dana Plamita if we don't understand that we are empty of what we think we are. Period. It's not gonna work. It's always gonna be conditional. That's why I said many times before that giving has nothing to do with what the other person does with what is given. Even if as soon as you turn around, they take it, put it in the garbage. It doesn't change anything about giving. Oh, it does when it's conditional, of course it does. Back, hey, I just gave you this. Come on. You don't appreciate me. The question is, why do you appreciate you? Right? Why do you bow to that? Or well, if I appreciate and, and uh, infatuated with myself, I would like you to be infatuated with me too. And by showing me that you... Appreciate my gift. You show me that you also help me, worship me. But this is an amazing exercise or practice, you know, to give something to somebody that, and then just to let it go completely. Even if you find out that it was thrown away or maybe re-gifted. We don't like that. (laughs) It's great practice because then you get to examine the perception of self. It becomes very prominent at that moment. So, only by realizing that the self is falsely created perception, we're able to engage in true giving. That becomes actually an embodiment of Paramita, Which is the essence of practice. The essence of practice. That's how Zazen is actualized. That's how it's actualized. I'm going to add with uh, Bodhidharma. You, you remember that. You may remember that from the book study last year. He said In his outline of practice, he said, Since what is real includes nothing worth begrudging, we give our bodies, our lives, and our property in charity without regret, without the vanity of giver, gift, or recipient, the, three, the triple emptiness, and without bias or attachment. To get rid of obstructions, we teach others, but without becoming attached to appearances. Thus, while we ourselves practice, we are able to help others as well as to glorify the path of enlightenment. And as with charity, we do so, we practice charity with others while practicing the the other five paramitas, right? Because charity, as you remember, or giving, dana paramita, is standalone paramita. That is representing all the other paramitas. But while practicing the six paramitas to eliminate delusion, we practice nothing at all. And this is what, what is meant by practicing the Dharma. So the giving, the ultimate giving, is the giving of the perception of a self. And from that, life itself becomes an embodiment of giving. Thank you.